coordinate that at all. Yeah. <laughs> Cheers, Cheers, man. We're back. We're Louder back. in the fridge. I guess we can call this season two. <laughs> season two. But the problem is we also took a three-month ba- break before our last episode. Yeah. <laughs> season three? We're... Season two was really short. Disney yeah. got their hands on it. It got canned. And yeah, now we're with exactly. fucking... Exactly. Blame Fox News. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, we're going to try to do these more consistently. We also said that last time. <laughs> Very much so. And do not hold us to that because we'll probably break that promise immediately. Yeah, yeah. but we're going to try. So uh, yeah, I just looked on our files. The last episode we did was 2021. So it's been a while. Over two years ago. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's changed? Holy shit. So much has changed. A lot. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, For those that don't know, Taylor and I play in a band, and our our band has started playing shows. We're in the process of recording a new album. For those of you who don't know, I think this is the longest we've gone into an episode without mentioning Veritones. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. But uh, yeah, we're we're here. We're back. What are we talking about today, Taylor? Oh, that's all we're saying about our band? That's how we're summarizing <laughs> post-COVID Veritones? We're in a band? We're doing shows. We're recording an album. We just recorded an album. We have a full 4K live show that we just recorded at yeah. a mansion out in Toronto. By the way, that's the intro to the episode and the outro, so go mm-hmm. check it out on YouTube. Veritones Live at Baba House. Yeah. Shameless plug. <laughs> that's why you're the media guy. <laughs> All right, so what are we talking about today? Well, we figured with us attempting a comeback, we should look at how other people attempted comebacks. Yeah, that's it. So I thought up of the idea of let's look at some comeback albums throughout music history. I mean, mostly rock and roll because that's kind of what we focus on. But I don't know about you, but immediately when I started looking at comeback albums, there was like a wide variety of what that means. Yeah, I think, I think that's kind of an interesting topic because I, I was thinking about that too like what nest what is a comeback album and there's a couple different ways i think that something can be considered a comeback album right like you know uh a big part of it is if you know an art a band has like a lineup change for whatever reason be Us. it <laughs> you know like death or just creative differences or whatever and then they're putting out a new album with a new iteration. So that's kind of a comeback of them saying, like, okay, we're still here. Uh, another one I thought of is, you know, there's bands that have a lot of commercial success with an album. And yep. then they'll kind of put out a few, not really get that same level of commercial success, and then come back with an album that just kind of flies right to the top. Us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Also, I just thought of this while we were talking about, like, you know, someone dies, someone gets replaced. If you guys, if I die, and yeah. you guys don't use that to sell albums or something, I'm <laughs> going to be really, really pissed. Sad, yeah. Like, if you don't monetize my death, that's a wasted opportunity. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think that's kind of how, you know, we all feel about it is, you know, our singer died doing this album. <laughs> uh, you have until June. That's when I turn 28 and yeah, it's all true. over. Then it, you know, then it doesn't matter. No more marketing. It's a fucking old boomer dies on drugs. <laughs> This fucking guy, he's dead. Who cares? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the the last type of comeback really I could think of is a reunion, which is kind of an interesting thing because, you know, m- all reunions are kind of a comeback, but not all comebacks are reunions. So Yeah. Uh, and also, I would say the least successful overall, mm-hmm. typically a reunion. Yeah, generally. There's kind of, it becomes very hard to recapture the original magic when you're doing that. It, a lot of them kind of 
come off as like nostalgia plays. Yeah, and I mean, look at how many bands fall into the curse of releasing albums after the greatest hits era, right? <laughs> yeah. Like there are very few bands who have managed to pull that off. Uh-huh. Yeah. So yeah, I think that kind of covers what I'm thinking about when I'm thinking comeback albums. Anything that I you thought of no, otherwise that, or that that's pretty much it. I have some intricacies <laughs> in within those categories yeah. of, you know, it's not always so black and white mm-hmm. and sometimes, you know, the comeback is just public opinion of like yeah. oh this guy fell off maybe they're even still putting out good stuff but mm-hmm. not as many people are liking it or even listening to it and yeah. there's uh, i don't know if you want to jump into this right away but uh yeah sure yeah. do you do you have one you you have in mind right yeah, away yeah i mean one that kind of falls into a couple categories of um not just like falling out of relevancy but mm-hmm. adjusting with yeah. the times is johnny cash Okay. And this yeah. is, I think, a big one. Yeah. Uh, all thanks to Mr. Rick Rubin. Yeah. Who, <laughs> so many, actually, when I was looking yeah. up at, uh, like, comeback albums and that kind of stuff, a lot of them were Rick Rubin. Yeah. You got, like, Red Hot Chili Peppers. You got Johnny Cash. I forget what other ones mm-hmm. I saw there. Maybe it was, um, who was the one that you were showing me the other day that uh, Elton John plays on? Oh, um, Allison Chains. Was uh, he part of that? I don't think so. I'm not. Never mind then. He might have. Might have. <laughs> but I, I saw a couple. It's like this dude loves to just take people who are out of relevancy and just like pop them right back in. Yeah, and he was responsible for a lot of like uh, you know he takes artists and kind of adds his own production style and it tends to elevate their stuff. Like I, immediately when I hear Rick Rubin, I always think of Slayer. Funny enough, Slayer. Yeah. So um, he. Uh, you know, he's Rick Rubin came up as kind of this hip hop guy, and then he produced Slayer's Rain and Blood, and he was, you know, really the first producer that had worked with Slayer to be like, oh, this super aggressive metal band should be right in your face when you're hearing <laughs> it, not ten feet away, yeah. right here. So, you know, he he did that, and he had an interesting way of, you know, taking his musical experience. And just applying it to other bands in, in a way that really shaped a lot of popular music. And he did it with like a wide variety of artists. Yeah. Like Johnny Cash is not Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> and he worked with Nirvana too, didn't he? I don't. Who, what, what, uh, maybe yeah. Foo Fighters then? Might have worked with Foo Fighters. Not, not sure on that. I don't, I don't know. As the you can whole tell, the podcast has not changed with <laughs> yeah. my lack of available information. Yeah, there, there is a big caveat of like we're gonna say musical facts. Some of them are probably right. What <laughs> <laughs> you don't come here for just the facts? No, we're not gonna let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? <laughs> yeah, but like, look at uh, Johnny Cash, who yeah. like, I mean, obviously the fifties, sixties were his heyday. Yeah. Comes the 70s, 80s, 90s. 70s held some prominence, mm-hmm. but like by the time the early 90s hit, like yeah. who listened to Johnny Cash yeah, anymore? You know, that... Rick Rubin gets a hold of him and he does American Recordings, a series mm-hmm. of five albums, four, yeah. which is his obviously most popular one and mm-hmm. has Hurt, Personal Jesus, okay, a yeah. bunch of covers on there, which yeah. if you go to Spotify, Hurt's his number one yeah, the... played song on there. Like, in, you listen to his voice, mm-hmm. 
he sounds old, yeah. obviously, but is kind of using that to his advantage. He's portray- yeah. using that to portray emotion and show the frailty in his voice. Yeah. Well, what I think is so cool about that is they really like he did a great job of capturing Johnny Cash where he was in life. You know, like Hurt is widely considered one of the best cover songs of all time. And it's kind of mm-hmm. in the context of, you know, this man at the end of his life kind of reflecting back and seeing like all the people he's lost all the people he's heard and you know how he's internalizing that and stuff is really cool and i think like it's a pretty bold you know move to really like paint this picture of this artist you know it would have been really easy to be like johnny cash throwback to the golden days yeah <laughs> Folsom <yeah>. prison too <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? bring him back <laughs> yeah but that's that's they not what he them. sought to do so no and like Just thinking about it now, Hurt might be a prime example of the one of the best cover songs of all time. Yeah, he's making it his own. It's transformative. Mm -hmm. Like it is taking a song. Who would have ever thought before this that Johnny Cash would be covering Nine Inch Nails? Yeah, no. Like who would think of that? Yeah. And Johnny Cash comes in, and it's the song he's most well-known for now. Like, yeah. well, may- maybe not most well-known for, but, like, it's his highest on Spotify. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, it's up there, and there's there's not really that many artists that would have a song they recorded 50 years into their career mm-hmm. that really rivals in popularity what they did, you know, 10, 20 years into it, you know? And still holds cultural relevancy. Yeah, and, you know, is regarded with, like, such, you know, respect in terms of, like, its artistic value, right? And, like, we know as a band how hard it is. We always want to do cover songs, and it's like, okay, we're trying to make it our own and, like, kind of trying to do a small version of that where we're taking a song, transforming it into our style. Mm Mm-hmm. That's not an easy thing no, to do. It's very difficult and it, it takes practice and to just, you know, have a couple examples where it was done so masterfully is really cool to see. Yeah, and I mean, obviously Johnny Cash's, you know, artist voice was a lot more uh yeah. set in stone <laughs> yeah, and you sure. know, other than like our always changing lineup of yeah. <laughs> delinquents. Yeah, us screwing around. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it's a you know, cool thing for for johnny cash to have such like well-loved albums right at the end of his career because i think it really cements his legacy because as we were looking up you know doing some preliminary research for this episode you know we i'm sure you looked up to like best comeback albums worst comeback albums and he had a couple that like were on both you know like yeah there's some artists throughout this process that like they had multiple comebacks, some more successful than others. Definitely. And uh, yeah, if I see, if I remember correctly, I think he had one kind of like early to mid '90s that didn't go so didn't go so hot. And Johnny Cash. Yeah. Ooh, I don't even don't even remember that one. Don't remember the album name or something. So probably was on the worst comebacks <laughs> yeah. list. But yeah, you know, it's good that he was able to you know finish strong with uh you know the Rick Rubin albums and really kind of you know cement his legacy and like thank god you know Mm -hmm. like you look at some of the artists who as of late haven't been doing well Mm -hmm. and like 10 years ago it's like not to say that we devalue an artist's death yeah if they're releasing shit music but Mm -hmm. if they put out 
like I mean, we'll talk about later, a literal death album. Yeah. And it's amazing. Mm-hmm. That death is going to have a lot more long-standing importance. Yeah, it changes the perception for sure. Like so. if Johnny Cash is hurt is what I think of with Johnny Cash dying, yeah. right? Like mm-hmm. that's where my mind goes and yeah. that holds a weird place <laughs> yeah. with people, you know? Like Oh, for sure. And it's it just like such a powerful, you know, <laughs> message, image that he he got to put out, you know, which Again, very few artists have that privilege to really like, you know, okay, I know I'm dying or like, I know I'm kind of, this is where it's going. I'm going to control the narrative rather like for most people, you just, you croak and then people remember what they remember. Right. So Yeah. Okay. I, I, th- I think I need to get this out of the way now Yeah. because I've, I've mentioned it a few times already yeah. and just let me, let me go. Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm let you run. Um, Bowie is really tied in with Johnny Cash in yeah. my mind because okay. he also had a voice that changed over time. And up mm-hmm. until 2003 was legit releasing an album every year or two. Yeah. Like from 1967 up to 2003 with reality. Yeah. Just every couple of years, here's Bowie. Yeah, here's a new album. Had a couple, like, you know, full reinventions in there, too. Oh, yeah. You know, you have the Thin White Duke. You have Ziggy Stardust. You have all these, like, characters and his style changed and all that. One thing that he struggled with changing was his actual voice deteriorating, just like Johnny Cash, Mm -hmm. right? Johnny Cash, you listen to, especially uh, American Recordings 5. Yeah. Um, He can't hit the notes he used to, and Johnny Mm -hmm. Cash... You know, I'm not going to say he has a huge range on yeah. his voice, but uh, you hear in those lower notes are kind of breaking up and stuff. But we had that issue as well. And there was 10 years between reality and the next day. Yeah. Uh, the next day, he started the two chain, the album, two albums, his two last albums where he just yeah. didn't let people know it was coming. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of kept it under lock and key, released it. And we saw the start of this two-album chain, which was starting to reflect on his life. Yeah. And he used the fact that his voice was deteriorating to his advantage. Yeah. Same thing Johnny Cash did, mm-hmm. where he was, you know, using those breaks in his voice to portray emotion, which is a really good way of aging. Because we've both seen bands play yeah. that try <laughs> and do shit like they used, used to, to. Yeah, and, and it, it sounds awful yeah you're fighting biology at that point and you know it's it's kind of a shame like you know obviously with big bands that have hits and people love those songs they want to hear them but it can be kind of a shame for the singer to just you know especially bands we like where you know they hit their popularity kind of 70s and 80s kind of thing by now they're like 70 and 80 (laughs) yeah shit. i saw steve miller band in 2012 Playing with Tower of Power and Journey. Mm -hmm. And these guys did not adjust anything. Yeah. (laughs) And these, they were in the 60s, right? Mm -hmm. Like, they were prominent in the 60s. They must have been, what, that make them like 80-something? Yeah, somewhere around there. And they were trying to do Mm -hmm. shit like they used to. And he sounded awful. Yeah. And he was trying to run around. He's just this old (laughs) dude out of breath, like, not hitting any notes, forgetting lyrics, and like... Steve Miller Band is a huge fucking band. Oh, yeah. And, like, 
if you're at that age, like when I saw Dennis D. Young, he was just like at his keyboard. Yeah. He's like, I'm he literally said, I'm too old to run around. Yeah. I'm gonna let my son do it. Like <laughs> yeah. and his son was up there giving energy and Dennis Young's at the at the keyboards, like playing yeah. and singing and stuff. But like, yeah, I'm I I, I went off on a tangent here. But it I, I just <laughs> I wanna end the Bowie thing uh in artists who use Johnny Cash used Hurt as yeah. a reflection uh, on his life, and David Bowie very much did that as well. Obviously, in Black Star, his album he released when he died, but in the next day, he starts going back to the styles that he used to have okay. uh, in different eras of his life. And I just want to read some lyrics from the song the next day, yeah, and then sure. I, I promise, I promise, <laughs> yeah. I'll get off the Bowie thing. <laughs> That's all good. Um, here I am, not quite dying, my body left to rot in a hollow tree. It branches through the shadows on the gallows for me, and the next day, and the next, and another day. Bars. Like, bars. <laughs> Straight up. But, like, this is his first album. Didn't let anyone know it's coming. He's, yeah. like, opening the doors to being like, I'm gonna die soon. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, I'm not dead yet. Time is ticking. Let's talk about it. I'm in the process. Yeah. <laughs> Watch this. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. Like, and he had these, he brought back some of those like grimy songs mm -hmm. from uh, Diamond Dogs and like different styles and really used the fact that it was a retrospective to his advantage. I, I think yeah. that's really cool. And this this now ends mm -hmm. the Bowie. Yeah. Well, I'll, talk I'll ask of you it. a couple questions about it. Yeah. So I seem to remember looking in the list. Did that album come out 2013? Mm -hmm. Okay. Were you a Bowie fan? Before that album okay, came out. Okay, yeah, actually, I meant to talk about this, and I didn't. Yeah. Huge Bowie fan. Okay. Uh, David Bowie and Labyrinth was, like, one of my first crushes, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> there you um, go. But that album came out, and I would have been, what's that, like, 16, maybe 15 at the time. Yeah. And I was a huge Bowie fan. I, okay. I, I listened to a lot of Bowie growing up, and albeit a lot of the greatest hit CDs my mom bought me and stuff. Yeah. Uh, and then the next day it came out and I listened to it and I said to my teacher, my yeah. music teacher at the time, uh, it just sounds like he's dying. Like I didn't <laughs> yeah. like it. Oh yeah. I was like, this isn't Bowie. What the hell is going on here? Yeah. And then I like kept listening to it cause it bothered me. I'm like, this is like, I haven't heard any new Bowie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. There's Did just, I break just... anything? Uh, oh no, sick. No, yeah, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Tip. Just dropping your shit everywhere. Yeah, it's all good. Um, and she just kind of like didn't really respond. She was like, oh, "Okay, yeah, yeah." Uh, and then I like it, I kept listening to it because I was like, "What the hell?" Like, is it? And then it clicked. I started listening to the lyrics yeah. and realizing what he was talking about and going for. I was like, "Oh my god, what's <laughs> yeah. happening? Is he yeah. gonna leave us?" Like, you know. And it kind of brought those emotions and it clicked okay. with me. Okay, yeah, I was kind of curious because you, you you mentioned that for this album he kind of was going through like all the previous styles that he did. So I was curious as like you as a Bowie fan, if you're listening through that, like you know, if right away you kind of like got the nostalgia going through or if it, like the message of the album of kind of him saying like i'm gone <laughs> I, I, I think at that time i was a little young to yeah. uh, to be honest bowie's discography mm -hmm. it's something like 40 albums oh, yeah. like it's <laughs> absurd he has so many yeah. albums not all them bangers so at that time i was probably a little young to catch all yeah. the references and 
wasn't even aware of some of the shitty stuff Bowie did during yeah. <laughs> his life that he's referring to and not making amends for, but coming to terms with yeah. uh, on this album where it's just like, yeah, kind of yeah. it was lost on me. But as the years kind of went by and I look into it more and then with Black Star releasing yeah. uh, and being a full retrospective on his life, it's mm-hmm. like, okay, look back in the catalog look at all this yeah. stuff, see the relevance of it. And I still, I still really enjoy and catch new things on listens of like black star in the next day. Mm-hmm. And even uh reality. Like, okay. Interesting. Cause yeah, I've heard you talk a lot about black star, uh, but I hadn't really heard you talk about next day at all. So it's interesting to hear that it kind of like set the stage for black star, which, you know, is very, I've heard multiple people kind of really praise for, you know, what it did for, and what he was able to do for his legacy and yeah i I mean uh there's you know in those lyrics i read it's it's coming to terms with living up to the legacy Mm -hmm. and black star is literally about that it's uh, actually based on an elvis song that was never released that bowie heard when he went and saw elvis live yeah uh that was about living up to your legacy a black star dying star Gotcha. Um, yeah. and living up to whatever the fuck that means mm-hmm. and how it's impossible. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a very powerful, you know, image to for an artist to be conveying. Thank you for letting me stand on this soapbox. Yeah, there we <laughs> I go. I appreciate it. <laughs> oh, it's my turn. <laughs> so I, I also have two albums that I kind of want to look at one after the other because they're... They have some similarities, but they also have some differences. Okay. So when I, whenever I hear comeback album, my mind immediately goes to ACDC back in black. Yeah, baby. Right? I, and I think I mentioned it to you when you were talking about doing this episode. But mm-hmm. And when I thought of the idea, immediately I was like, okay, talking about this. So I was kind of digging into the history of back in black. And, and it's pretty interesting, right? So... To kind of sum up how ACDC's career had been going up to it, right? This band from Australia kind of puts out a bunch of albums, kind of develops a style of like very energetic, straightforward, right in your face rock and roll. That is a good way of putting it. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, some people feel differently about it. And, you know, some people love it. Some people can't stand it. But, mm-hmm. you know, they had their thing, right? And they're developing it. They're gaining momentum. But they never really found mainstream success until 1979 where they put out Highway to Hell. Oh, yeah. And I think it got to, like, number six in the U.S. charts. So it didn't hit number one? No, it didn't wow. hit number one. But this was really their first taste of, of mainstream success. Yeah. And this was recorded with their, uh, like, their singer for that run of albums uh bon scott and after recording highway to hell bon scott passes away from alcohol induced vomit asphyxiation yep right the old bonham yeah the you know the unfortunate fate of many of the greatest rock stars uh, maybe i shouldn't maybe i shouldn't make light of that <laughs> the old bonham <laughs> you know as it, as it goes yeah but after that what i heard was that you know, the members of ACDC didn't know what to do, right? They're, you know, they were considering, you know, giving up, d- disbanding and moving on. And I guess a bunch of friends and family, including the parents of Bon Scott, convinced them to, or like encouraged them to just continue it with a new singer. So that's have- like when 
you get divorced and your ex's parents like you more than they like <laughs> their own the kid. kid. <laughs> yeah, kind of similar energy. But uh, yeah, they go out and get this Scottish guy by the name of Brian Johnson yep. to, to sing on their next album. Who was an ex-pop singer, right? Yeah, he kind of had this like pop rock band called Jordy, uh, I think. If you a, haven't heard it before, yeah. go listen to it knowing what he did after. Yeah. It'll blow your fucking mind. Yeah, it's it's kind of hilarious just because, you know, Brian Johnson in ACDC. You know, that kind of voice. And in Jordy, he's just, he has a nice voice. I love you. Yeah, it sounds like a normal dude singing. So it's just so interesting. But they they recruit this guy. They get they get him to sing way higher than his register, yep. and they put out these songs together in an album that they you know leave all black as a tribute to Bon Scott, and it's one of the biggest albums ever. Goes oh. number one. It's huge. Every song on there is a banger. Yeah, it's like amazing through and through some of the most iconic acdc songs are off of back in black what's it open with hell's bells hell's bells oh. yeah which amazing opener yeah like just i i listen to acdc live albums and that's one of my favorite songs to yeah. listen to because right when that bell starts tolling <laughs> the audience just starts flipping yeah shit. you know what's coming and just the way it builds momentum is is so cool and i think that album really is you know, ACDC hitting their stride of like, this is what we are, you know. And at that point, you know, what they had, you know, the style that they had built, I think that's the strongest point it had been. Yeah. Like it, it also might just be the strongest of their whole yeah. legacy. Like up until now, oh. it might be the strongest moment of ACDC. Yeah, I think there's definitely a solid argument that can be made for that. Now, l looking at the history of the album, what I there's a couple of things I find very interesting. So it was released, I believe, five months after the death of Bon Scott, which if we're talking a comeback, that's kind of, you know, short. Like typically comeback, we kind of associate with people kind of going away from for a while long periods of time yeah so in this you know there's definitely that shorter you know span between but you know they kept working now what i think really makes um that album successful is they kind of stuck to their guns for the most part like they didn't reinvent themselves as acdc they got the same producer that worked on highway to hell to mm -hmm. produce uh back in black which was mutt lange you know, it's still Angus Malcolm and the singer Brian Johnson writing the songs where in the past it would have been Angus Malcolm and Bon Scott yeah, and various iterations of that. So you have similar creating creative voices coming to the table. And I think they kind of went into it with like, we want to make the same kind of music that people know and love us for. Yeah. You know, they had this this path. Right. And yeah, it they knocked it out of the park just great riffs great songs and they got rewarded for it in so many ways of you know that's their height of their commercial success you know creative artistic wise it's a high, really the height as well you ever want to rile up some white people at a party <laughs> put that album put, on put back i don't care who on. they are they will get yeah, riled. they'll get going you know like it's 
it's just such a great one of the definitive rock and roll albums. Definitely. One one thing that that reminded me of, I didn't even think to talk about was, and I won't talk long on this, but uh, even Def Leppard's second album with their drummer getting in a car accident, Mm -hmm. or I think it was on a motorcycle, whatever it was, and loses an arm. And a year after that, they released their second album. Yeah. It's like, that could also be seen as a comeback. Uh-huh. Dude lost an arm, and they were like, should we get another drummer? He's like, not a chance. No. <laughs> I'm doing this one-handed. Yeah. And, like, he has his rig and that kind of stuff to do it all. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, like, five months isn't that long. No, not well, at all. Do you know how many of those songs were written with, like, the old... Singer, uh, or I, th- I think they had a couple like lyrics of Bon Scott, but they elected to not use it because they mm. felt that that would feel like they're trying to cash in on his death. Like they were trying to that thing I told you to do with me earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They have <laughs> yeah, a little bit more integrity. <laughs> really, I'm... me telling you to do it to me is saying is me saying if you die, yeah, I will <laughs> do that. Do to that. You. <laughs> I, you know, you're giving consent before the fact. So, you know, that we're good. We we were hanging out the other day, and I got you to give me some chords because I want to work on writing some lyrics. That's so I can write my tears in heaven when <laughs> oh, you yeah. die. There, there you <laughs> <laughs> Unreleased song by Justin. <laughs> he gave me this chord progression. He just said some chords out loud. He gets partial writing credit, but yeah. I don't have to give him royalties. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. But, yeah, there's also some other interesting things with uh, the production of Back in Black of um. They recorded it in the Bahamas. Really? Yeah, that was kind of interesting. I guess they were wanted to do it in the UK, but all the studios were booked. So. They were like, "Where can we go that's hotter than home?" Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. But uh, yeah, Angus isn't sweaty enough. <laughs> yeah, we need him to fully just drench his guitar and schoolboy clothes. But I was thinking about uh, how, like, you know, we say it's weird to go look at the singer's other band. And I was thinking about like interviews and how it's even weird to see interviews of them talking normally. Yeah. Just the whole band. Uh-huh. And I think my biggest issue with it is I just want Angus to make goblin noises. Yeah. That's all I want him <laughs> yeah. to do. I don't want him to speak English. I just want them to ask him a question. He's just like, no. Nah, nah, nah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, that's what you kind of associate with looking at angus and expecting out of his voice yeah (laughs) rock and roll goblin dude is one of those guys that's so ugly that you know he does well with women (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, but uh, you know it's just such a cool album and even you know in the title back in black they're saying this is our comeback we're coming for blood you know yeah i guess literally put it out on the table yeah so the other album I kind of want to contrast to this. Now you're going to be very surprised, but it's a Van Halen album. Shocker! <laughs> Whoa, no way. <laughs> so they kind of have a similar career path. And interestingly enough, Van Halen and ACDs were two bands that were kind of compared a lot in their day. And, you know, they kind of bring, a, you know, a lot of energy to rock and roll, though, you know, in different ways. Yeah, I guess Back in the day, it would be a lot easier to compare them. I think now with, you know, rose-tinted yeah. glasses on and looking in retrospect, it's very easy to separate the two. Yeah, to see the difference. But anyway, so in the same way that ACDC had Highway to Hell come out in 1979, they have a change in singer, and then they put out Back in Black in 1980. Mm-hmm. So Van Halen had a run of albums and, you know, very successful kind of 
redefined a lot of like rock and roll and metal at the time. Yeah. And, you know, there was ups and downs. And right at the end, they put out 1984, which at the time was their most commercially successful album. Is that the one with um, with uh, Panama? Yeah. So yeah. that, you know, it's got Panama, Jump, <laughs> Hot for Teacher, 1984. Justin gets mad at me, but Jump <laughs> is the worst Van Halen song ever. So I'll, I'll challenge you on that just because the album I want to talk about is 5150. Okay. So it's the album that came out right after 1984. So 1984, you know, it it's their last album with the original lead singer David Lee Roth. Yeah. And it goes to number two in the charts. It would have been number one if it wasn't for Thriller. Oh, okay. <laughs> came, Slayed by MJ. Yeah. Which, Tale as old as time. There's kind of an interesting thing where you know, Thriller had a lot of great songs on it, but one of the big ones was Beat It, on which Eddie, Eddie Van, Van Halen, Halen played. Plays unpaid and i believe uncredited so he kind of helped the album that you know stopped his from going number one and at least when he played on black or white black and black or white uh later on in bad on the bad album he got yeah. credited yeah at least. <laughs> they uh they went to retro rectify that mistake mm -hmm. anyway so after they p put out this you know huge album that goes number two they go on this huge world tour that you know that was the biggest they had ever done at the time and tensions between band members arise their singer david lee roth leaves the band so Rip. yeah that's kind of a, a tough thing for a band to like at your peak falls apart and you kind of have to you know find out how you continue so I guess the big difference between ACDC and Van Halen is like ACDC, Bon Scott died. So, yeah. And you know. David Lee Roth was just a drama queen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they recruit Sammy Hagar to come in. And there are other differences between 1984 and 5150. Um, so they recorded 1984 at eddie's studios 5150 which that's going to get confusing for this okay. they also recorded 5150 at 5150 but it was a different producer so the all the albums with david lee roth the producer was ted templeman and by the end on 1984 the band was trying to like really pry away from that like eddie had a lot of frustration of he felt you know their producer was you know hampering him create creatively like stopping him from doing the stuff he want wants to do and one of the big sources of tensions were a ted templeman and david lee roth didn't want eddie van halen to play keyboards which is kind of an understandable viewpoint considering he's one of the greatest guitar players that have ever lived at the end of this you're going to tell us who the zodiac killer is right <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. but yeah eddie had this he got really excited with keyboards at the time, wanted to have more and more of it in Van Halen's music. He kind of got a little bit with, you know, 1984, Jump, All Wait, some, you know, synthesizer-driven songs. Yep. Now, it, for 5150, they got uh, Mick Jones, who was the guitar player in Foreigner, to produce the album, along with Don Landy, which was their engineer for all the original albums. Okay. So they co-produced it, but, you know, there's not this voice that's going to, you know, creatively hamper um, Eddie. So they put out this album, and it goes number one in 1985. So they got their commercials, you know, 
the commercial success they were wanting and it it peaked right that yep. from that point you know kind of that perspective they seem at the height of their powers but there's kind of an interesting difference in how ACDC fans remember Back in Black and Van Halen fans remember 5150. So, you know, we kind of talked about like everyone loves Back in Black. Yeah, it's phenomenal album and yeah. still is looked at back at as their best. Yeah. Now, 5150 starts the new era of Van Halen, commonly referred to as the Van Hager album, yep. which I found out there was actually pressure from the label to change their name officially to Van Hager. Oh, I'm so glad they yeah, didn't. The Van Halen That's, brothers that would be shot gross. that down. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so there is kind of an interesting thing with 5150 of there's not those songs that are like you like known by everybody, right? Like, not their big anthem rock hits. Exactly. Like, even the most casual of rock fans know Jump, might know Panama and Hot yeah. for Teacher, stuff like that. Whereas, you know, most of them won't know a single song off the album 5150. But guitar players. Guitar players. <laughs> well, no, a couple. But he, so some of the differences I find with that is 5150, I, I listened to it the other day and it sort of tricks you into getting on board with this new direction right the opening song uh is uh look it up i think it's called enough okay but that sounds like pretty close to a classic van halen song mm -hmm. it's got like crazy guitar grooves this bombastic drums so it, it feels very familiar and then the Oh, Good Enough was the name of the song. So then it goes into Why Can't This Be Love. Okay, yeah. Which, you know, you might have heard of it, but it's already by the title starting to get a little cheesy. Yeah. Then they go back to Get Up. It's got that classic Van Halen double bass groove, high yep. energy. <laughs> and then it goes into Dreams. I don't know if I know that Yeah, song. so if you think Jump is cheesy... Uh oh. Let me tell you, Dreams <laughs> is brutal <laughs> for that. Summer Nights, also pretty cheesy. Yeah. Best of Both Worlds, a little less. Love Walks In, pretty cheesy. These sound like Lionel Richie songs. Exactly, right? <laughs> like, and that's not, you know, if you think of original Van Halen, you know, most of their t songs had this theme of, you know, it was never, oh, I love you, yeah, yeah, I love you. Why can't this be love? Love walks in. David Lee Roth ain't talking about love. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so th they had this kind of edge, and they were looking at, you know, darker themes, kind of, you know, like running with the devil, sort of life on the road, isolated. Yeah, they're doing the r rock star way. Yeah. Ain't talking about love title says it all you know mm -hmm. love is rotten to the core a song like jamie's crying talking about like a woman having a bunch of one night stands and not feeling fulfilled by it yeah. kind of thing and i find that's a big difference with the van like original van halen lineup and then the van hager era of there is way less of that edge to it it's you know a lot more straightforward they kind of embrace pop sounds of the time but it's not really what Van Halen fans want out, of, out of the music. any tin whistles no. on it? There, one thing I do find pretty funny is there's a couple points, like you know in Van Halen songs where David Lee Roth sort of ad-libs stuff. Oh, like, yeah. 
<laughs> like stuff like that and even during unchained it's like come on dave give me a break one break comment like stuff like that of yeah. like goofing around dude was known to just kind of be wild in the studio exactly like i think they literally just kept playing the song mm. until he started actually singing yeah, just it. screwing around and then he starts singing it and then they cut all the stuff he screws around with mm. but they try to do that in the opening song good enough but you know for as many things as sammy hager is great at like phenomenal singer like had a voice and range that far exceeded what david lee roth was capable of yep he did not have the same charisma. <laughs> so <laughs> no. there's a part of the song where they kind of go for that breakdown, and he, he's doing something like, hey, waitress, what do you have on the menu? Yeah, I'll have some of that! <laughs> kind of goes. And it's Literally just, like the least appealing. You listen yeah. to like Hot for Teacher, yeah. and it's like making these innuendos with pencils of yeah. David Lee Roth being grimy, and then yeah. it's like, can I have some pie? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So there's definitely that like a di- you know lack of the natural charisma that David Lee Roth has. And I understand it of like you have this band that that's a huge part of their sound. Yeah. But... Not everybody is charismatic like David Lee Roth. Very few no. people are. So I think that's kind of where one thing where they started to struggle. And, you know, overall, just through losing that edge, I think, was a huge blow to, you know, how those songs will be perceived artistically. I'm, I'm sorry. I just got the image of, like, thinking about new members coming in and that kind of stuff our song tear it apart yeah in the middle of it we have this breakdown like i have no love for the millionaire it's kind of yeah. this preachy part where you kind of play the role of like an old school preacher yeah i'm imagining max <laughs> trying our to very do <laughs> french like yeah, keyboard player. bearded dude trying to do that yeah. with his accent yeah it wouldn't play yeah it wouldn't play so i think there's kind of that that similar thing right so you know contrasting uh, back in black with 5150 you know if you look at it purely commercial commercially they got what they wanted they it was bigger than the last it was their you know commercial peak really but i think back in black is remembered so much more fondly by acdc fans because they kept going with what they knew they wanted to do and really like it was a continuation of form really the only thing that changed was the guy singing at you yeah. right it was you know same quality of songs you know same big riffs same you know straightforward rhythm that you can just rock out to whereas with van halen on top of you now have a different singer you have different production you have kind of different songwriting in the sense that okay eddie's still throwing this stuff together but yeah he's not getting the resistance from dave and the producer so there's kind of that you know he's going off in directions that okay for the time would have been you know made sense to you know have big keyboard songs sometimes getting reined in a bit isn't a bad thing. yeah ex- sometimes limitations can breed creativity yeah and then there's also this aspect of David Lee Roth, I believe, wrote all the lyrics previously to Van Halen songs. And really, I after didn't know that, that. I thought it was Eddie and his brother who were doing that. So they would have written a lot of the songs, but lyrics was kind of left to the singer in that band. Okay, and yeah. In the same way, uh, Sammy Hagar wrote the lyrics for Van Halen songs when he was in the band. So you have kind of this, you know, this different voice coming through and. 
you know again it, like david lee roth was fascinated by kind of more interesting subjects whereas sammy hagar was love walks in why can't this be love like sammy <laughs> yeah. hagar comes from pretty corny roots doesn't he like he I, I believe he he got his start in a band called montrose okay and then he had a big solo hit i can't drive 55 yeah yeah kind of thing but it, it was always kind of like more straightforward and he never really hit that like tongue-in-cheek charisma that yeah that they had built on previously david lee roth was the friend that you like warn people about and then the yeah. people end up liking him yeah sammy hagar just kind of is the guy who's like holding the door going m'lady you know <laughs> damn whisper in sammy hagar <laughs> but yeah so i i found that was kind of interesting looking at like two sides of the same coin kind of thing of like they have their similarities and then they have their differences some yeah and i mean i feel like i i've never thought to compare acdc mm -hmm. and van halen but they kind of do fall in line in some things not yeah. that they play the same way but yeah. that they have their style mm -hmm. they've stuck with it it's worked yeah like and obviously you know van halen breaks out i would say a little bit more than acdc yeah in terms of like styles they explore i i definitely agree they kind of like go beyond what acdc have another interesting aspect is at the time they were lumped in together a lot with like the shows they were playing and stuff like you know they, were they did, playing together yeah monsters of rock stuff okay. and you know the i seem to remember there kind of was some tension like acdc was a huge influence on eddie van halen and developing that style but i don't think the acdc guys were super fond of the kind of things that you know van halen were doing yeah. musically so it's an interesting you know duo of bands that get did they together. feel out goblined with david lee roth <laughs> jumping around and his... you know in line <laughs> <laughs> they saw his tight tight pants and they're yeah. like fuck it we're going kilts <laughs> yeah so th those are two albums i wanted to to bring up yeah anymore yeah i mean uh actually something that kind of falls in line a little bit mm -hmm. uh, i'm gonna skip ahead I, you know what? I'm realizing that I have so many things here, so I'm going to skip to one that I actually want to talk about. Yeah. I'll lightly touch on Kiss, Lick It Up. Okay. Uh, that was one that I saw on a lot of lists in that people started to kind of hate Kiss yeah. in the late 70s, early 80s. Mm -hmm. They started out kind of like grimy, bluesy rock, yeah. and they very much kind of started to do that cheesy shit. I was made for love and you like. Made me. I want to rock and roll all night. Mm -hmm. I'm going to see Kiss later this month, by oh, the way. Yeah, I forgot about that. You're going to the, 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 the show here? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was offered a free Kiss ticket. I'm not going to say no to that. Yeah, why not? But, like, I can't stand I want to rock and roll all night. That song's <laughs> so corny. Ah, want to rock and roll all night. And, and party every day. <laughs> like, that's not a rock star song. <laughs> you know, like... Hot for Teacher is yeah. a rock star song. <laughs> Give me something to write on. Man. <laughs> yeah, like, and then there's these corny guys like, let's party all night. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's just, it's not. No, Taylor, you got it wrong. They rock all night. Oh, sorry. They party all day. <laughs> oh, my bad, Gene <laughs> yeah. Simmons. Um, Shout and out then, Gene Simmons. Uh, lick it up. You know, they're like, fuck it. We're going to go back to our roots. Their album cover is them without makeup. Okay, on. I was going to ask. Is, this is the album this is, without this the is makeup. This is the album. They're like, here we are. 
you could see us now. We're going back. And, like, it's harder hitting. They do more driving guitar mm-hmm. licks, like, a lot more, like, quicker stuff. I almost yeah. actually like a lot of Van Halen stuff, to be yeah, honest. Like This album came out in the 80s, right? 83. 83, yeah. Because uh, I, from what I know about it, I think they had kind of gotten some more guitarists of the era to mm-hmm. join them at the time. Because I don't think Ace Frehley played on that record i I think he was kind of long gone by then yeah and you know uh that kind of changeover but they have you know young and wasted is great on there lick it up on that (laughs) give me more okay um but that's it was kind of a return to form Mm -hmm. you know we talk about different comebacks they didn't stop releasing albums yeah this was just a return to form okay yeah but uh yeah i just wanted to quickly touch on that uh, I, I have a couple of, of 2000s. Uh, the rest of mine are from like the 2000s. Okay. I think the biggest one, you're, yeah. you would have been, how old would you have been? You're younger than me. So I would have been eight. You would have been seven. Yeah. American, American idiot. idiot. Yeah. <laughs> you could not escape this album. No, definitely not. I, I remember hearing it at the time and I loved it. I, you know, it was so many great songs on it. You know, of course, with the age that we were at the time, I I was dealing with the censored version on the radio, yeah, and I had Fish of America was <laughs> yeah. one of the lines that they say on the radio. On, I distinctly remember hearing like a very bad like beep bleeped version, but it was like you could kind of still hear him say "fuck." So, <laughs> God bless America, kind of thing. But yeah, I you're absolutely right. Of like you could not escape it if you wanted to, but you know. At the time, I didn't want to. I wanted to hear as much American Idiot as I could. You know? When when I saw this on the list, because it yeah. made almost every single list, yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, Dookie was the album before this. And it was almost 10 years ago. No, they released like three albums in between it. Yeah. Yesterday, I mm-hmm. made a challenge of listening to all three of those albums. Yeah. They fucking suck. <laughs> They're yeah. god-awful. Yeah. Like, they hit success with Dookie. Mm-hmm. And then I, I know they were dealing with a lot of addiction issues. Yeah. And it showed, like, yeah. those albums were bad. Yeah. And, like, it, they just kind of lost, you know, you're coming out of the grunge era mm-hmm. where it's all about portraying emotion. I think Dookie does that really well. You're yeah. not looking at uh, Trey Cool or Billy Joe Armstrong and being like, wow, his playing's amazing. Like, yeah. he's such a great instrumentalist. No, you're thinking, these guys kick ass. They come yeah. in, they knock down the door, and everyone's fucking partying. Yeah, good songs, good energy is exactly. what, what people wanted at that time. And they didn't have good songs. And then they didn't have good energy, energy. <laughs> yeah. for 10 years. Yeah. And then they come out with American Idiot. Yeah. And they hit the ground fucking running oh, yeah. again. Yeah. We, were, we were sitting in my apartment the other day listening to it. Yeah. Every single song is a banger. It's pretty great, yeah. Also, it's it's grouped up weird. We were, yeah. we, were, we didn't notice this when we were kids because we were listening to it on CDs or yeah. whatever. But... The only song that's not grouped together is American Idiot. Idiot and yeah. then the rest of the songs are yeah. two songs lumped together. Yeah. Holiday and, and then Boulevard, Boulevard of Broken, Broken Dreams. Dreams. Jesus Suburbia. Uh, and something else. I thought that When September Ends was on its own too, but I'm not it sure. It might be. Yeah. But regardless, there are, it's just weird. I never noticed that until yeah. – because I don't listen to Green Day very yeah. often. But uh, yeah, that I mean, you couldn't be a kid born when we were. Yeah. And just never hear this album. Yeah, not hear or realistically not love that album. Like every yeah. everyone I know, you know, 
at least you know you play American Idiot. They'll go. They might not be like, yeah, that's the best album ever, but they'll be like, oh yeah. <laughs> you know? And like we weren't allowed to buy it because it had the explicit symbol <laughs> yeah. on it, but our cousin could, who was yeah. older than <laughs> us. So we'd go to their cottage and then sit in his room and listen to it quiet enough so my mom yeah. couldn't hear it. And uh, yeah, no, that that album that instrumental to so many people oh yeah and i i looked up uh, the history of this album a little bit and there's some interesting stuff there too where um that wasn't the album they wanted to put out in 2004 really so they got together started writing and playing songs and this was described as like a mix of like latin rock with some folk stuff like it's some like american idiot was the album that was meant to be were american Idiot. okay so they had these like what was described as like very eclectic songs okay and they did demos for them and then the master tapes are stolen really yeah so they kind of you know they had this whole fight to try to get them back and at one point the producer asked them like do you guys think this is the best songs you've ever done <laughs> you sure about that yeah and they said no yeah so they gave up on it they did eventually find them back i don't know if they ever released them or not but they they got them back so then they started writing this punk rock opera <laughs> mm -hmm. and yeah it, well, they thank god those got stolen <laughs> yeah like to be honest <laughs> that criminal did music history a great service because <laughs> otherwise we might be opening up for green day you know like, <laughs> they might yeah. just be another buck That's cherry right. in the world mm -hmm. but yeah they, it's really cool of they had this like you know very strong artistic vision as to what the album was going to be and you know punk rock opera hadn't really been done before it you know yeah. you take rock operas and that kind of you know musical excessiveness in rock is kind of responsible for starting the punk movement initially yeah so to kind of have the merger of the two is very interesting and, and to do it in the way they did which was really cool i mean i think the most important thing is the sound of it of like you got these great songs that are just like pretty straightforward punk rock what you want to hear from a band like green day you don't want to be hearing salsa infused folk yeah. <laughs> rock kind of punk stuff you, oh, know? you want to hear like and i wouldn't even classify uh american idiot as garage rock but yeah. it was of that time dookie yeah. i would say is garage rock yeah but the production on american idiot mm -hmm. is phenomenal yeah really like, great really great production that's not taking away from the grime yeah i think that's a pitfall that so many bands fall into mm -hmm. when they're trying to be you know, like loose and hard rock and like wall of sound and yeah. that everything's so dialed in and like pristine yeah. uh, that it just loses any sense of feeling. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's super important. I, you know, I'm very interested in music that kind of conveys like, you know, the kind of darker sides of humanity in a way. And, and, you know, like we go through life and not everything is like crystal clear and perfect. And really, I can't tell by all the nihilistic lyrics you write constantly. <laughs> yeah. But it, you know, it's kind of the interesting thing of like in many aspects, a lot of the world is fucked and you know, that should be represented by the art that gets made on the world. I'm just remembering something you said earlier this year mm -hmm. where you were writing a song and we were, was it fallen? Uh, where you were like, you know, I was going through all my lyrics and I realized all of them were about how shit the world was. So I tried to make one that's like positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just kind of like put a, a 
positive spin kind of on things of like okay the world is fucked but what am i gonna do about it kind yeah of <laughs> so okay not not yeah. even positive it's like <laughs> yeah. keep on swinging <laughs> yeah kind of but but yeah so i think you know having that mentality reflected in production is is pretty important and it especially you know as a rock fan that really conveys the danger and excitement of rock and roll like it wouldn't be necessarily yeah. appropriate on like a jazz album or something but no, well i mean you know then you're bridging into like apocalyptic black jazz kind yeah, of stuff true. you know <laughs> yeah but no i think uh to tie it back to american idiot th that as a comeback is very interesting because again it's a different kind of thing of like this band had you know commercial success with their first album then they put out a string of just like nowhere and then they're like nah we're coming back not we're... even just a return to form but an evolution yeah evolution exceeding the original success like really going and for then it and immediately after <laughs> return to form <laughs> of those 10 <laughs> years of, between <laughs> yeah. dookie and american idiot because mm -hmm. uh they released an album what this year i uh, believe so yeah i haven't been uh, paying attention to green day I releases listened to it yeah. It's bad. <laughs> it's not, <laughs> there you go. You know, not every album can be American Idiot. <laughs> uh, is, was there another one you want to talk about? Yeah, so there's one more, and it kind of ties into this conversation we're having around production. So the album is Deep Purple, Perfect Strangers. So okay. I don't know if you're familiar with this album. I've, I've listened to it before yeah. in the background. So, I haven't fully sat down and paid yeah. attention. What this album is is... Uh, a reunion of the Mark II lineup of Deep Purple, which for those who aren't, you know, up to date on like the evolution of the, you know, lineup. So they started out as kind of this like psychedelic blues rock thing. And mm -hmm. then uh, John Lord, the keyboardist and Richie Blackmore, the guitarist wanted to go in like this more rock and hard rock direction at the time, you know, that like their contemporaries and Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath were kind of, you know, laying the groundwork for and they didn't think their singer and and bass player would go along well with this so they got ian gillen and roger glover yep. to join in and the first album they put out is in rock which yep. is a phenomenal album just you know a lot of that like early hard rock heavy metal energy like big fast songs great riffs machine head was part of this lineup as well yes right? so they did uh Child in Time, I believe, uh, Fireball, and then Machine Head. Which is yeah, one so, of my top ten albums of all time. Me too. And it's wildly considered the greatest Deep Purple album, one of you know, one Easy. of the greatest rock albums. Yeah. And kind of cemented their place in what was considered like the unholy trinity of rock of Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple, and Black Sabbath. Yeah. And after that, they had a couple albums with some lineup changes. So tensions between Richie Blackmore and Ian Gillen kind of rose, and Ian Gillen left the band. So, and Richie Blackmore was a psycho, wasn't he? Yeah. But all, just as an aside, he's yeah. like tied. They're like Angus Young and Richie Blackmore are like kings of ugly dudes that are so ugly, you know they sling. You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. No, he was uh, not a looker at all. But man, could he ever play? Oh yeah, he had no no desire to shave that unibrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. But yeah, so they put out an album with the Mark III lineup that had David Coverdale and Glenn Hughes. That you know, th those two guys came from a, a lot more of like a funk soul background. So they kind of brought that sound into the band. Yeah. Richie Blackmore didn't love it. 
he left. They got a new guitar player, Tommy Bolin, and they disbanded in 1975. Yep. They just they put out a statement saying there will be no more Deep Purple music. And then in 1984, the you know the gang from its height get together, and there's you know okay we're gonna start playing again we're gonna put out a new album, Perfect Strangers is that album, and there there's a couple things that I find kind of interesting in the album like it opens up with some big Hammond organ, which. You know, that's classic. That's Deep, Deep Purple. Purple. That's yeah. what you want to hear right away. You know, he's already standing on top of it while playing. Yeah. So you hear that sound, and I can imagine immediately there's like this nostalgia for Deep Purple fans. Like, oh, yeah, that's the stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, like taking a hit off a of fat joint. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> but what I think is kind of overarching on the album is when it came out, right? 1984, I believe. So. It sounds like an album from the 80s in what I consider kind of some unfortunate ways, right? We've talked about this, I believe, in the past, uh, where drums kind of changed in music in the 80s. They got bad. Yeah. like It got just very simple of like you're relying on production to have this big drum sound and the drummer's just playing this. Gods, the 80s is gods, where that... Boof, Basic rock beat got cemented as the basic rock yeah. beat. Obviously, there are standouts. Yeah. Rush was a band that was like <laughs> seeing prominence in the yeah. 80s, and Neil Peart is not that. Yeah. So I, th I think what's such a shame is there's a lot of that on this mm -hmm. record. And Ian Pace is in my top five rock drummers. Like, I think he's phenomenal, and I know he's capable of so he's much a killer. more. Like, you hear the stuff he was doing on, you know, Machine Head, and it's just so much groovier and more exciting and gives the band like so much more energy and momentum and power compared to just him sitting back on a backbeat oh yeah and like i mean um what was it uh space trucking mm -hmm. i constantly talk about part of his solo in that the like it's like a pass off between the yeah. hand and the feet kind of like really quick yeah that i practice a lot because mm -hmm. it's a really simple thing but with his bombastics behind it, yeah. it's fucking amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. So I think, you know, to have such a great drummer and, you know, there's very few places on the album where he's playing anything other than, like, the simplest version of a rock beat possible, you know? It's a shame. It's a shame. And, you know, in that, there's the 80s sounding drums of, you know, like, the little bit of a gated reverb kind of thing. Yeah. Big toms and kicks. And it... I was kind of thinking about it, about like, why do, you know, like 70s and 60s albums in general sound better to me than a lot of 80s stuff. And I think the 80s kind of marked a shift in the philosophy of it felt like before they were trying to get drums to sound like they do in the room for the yeah. most part. Just like, OK, we want to hear the power come through. We want to hear, you know, the, you know, the volume, how the cymbals wash and, and stuff. And, yeah. you know, you want to hear that snare kind of hit you in the face. You I, like you listen to early Zep records. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about Bonham's kit and how yeah. it's mic'd up and how it sounds is I'm standing beside the kit. Exactly. Whereas it feels like in the 80s, suddenly it was not let's how do we make this sound like it does in the room? Let's make it sound like bet bigger than it does yeah you know that's where they start 
putting reverb on it and you know you get that huge drum sound but in that you can't fly around the kit with that because no. it, it gets it'll, super it'll get muddy. muddy yeah exactly so i think there's there's kind of that you know overall the album it has a lot of the elements of that deep purple sound another kind of unfortunate thing is ian gillen his voice wasn't quite what it was at its peak and that's you know understandable like people age and also for a dude who sings like he did you know that wasn't a style that was going to lend itself to longevity this was leave it all out and push as much as you can yeah i mean that famous show that me and you have watched many times yeah. the uh live at ms no it's not madison square garden it's in new york it's in new yeah. york uh and like him and the guitar just going back and forth or, yeah richie blackmore <laughs> plays something and he's like ah like yeah. <laughs> yeah. that kind of stuff and both of us when watching that it's like you can't do that and still be able to sing 10 years later yeah like no, not a chance unless you have the most perfect like yeah. theory and breathing <laughs> yeah like you're not going to be yeah. able to and it turns out you can't yeah so it, it's kind of a thing of like he's still ian gillen who in my opinion one of the greatest rock singers of Agreed. all time so he still sounds good but you can kind of tell there's a little bit more straining on some of the notes that he's going for stuff overall the um guitar it still sounds good it sounds a little bit 80s of you know it's scooped in the mids kind of you know the sound. I, yeah. I don't want to get too technical with like how they EQ it and all that stuff, but because we'll be here for hours. Yeah, that's it'll like be a long you time. saying, "Okay, Taylor, we're gonna have a podcast on Bowie." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing I think they they did right, and you know, considering other decisions they made, I can see maybe they would have debated is like having that Hammond organ is crucial because I I can imagine there would have been a lot of pressure to like. No, no, no. That's stuff from the 60s yeah, and 70s. That's old news. We're all about synthesizers now, which I think would have just been a disaster. And then here's us writing an album in 2023 of our Lord Jesus Christ <laughs> playing on old instruments, getting mm -hmm. the Hammond organs yeah, out and well, stuff. That's being played on a Hammond organ, exactly. But I, I think there, there's kind of an interesting thing, too, with, um, you know, at the time, I think there would have been a lot more pressure for a rock band to sound current and of the time than yeah. there would be now. Like these days, I feel like most rock fans don't want a rock record that sounds like popular music in 2023. For sure. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, with us recording our album, you know, we're kind of just going in with the goal of like, let's just make this sound cool. You know, like yeah. there's attention being paid to like okay how do we sound live and how do we want that to transfer over to this record but we're not listening to what's on the top 40s being like okay we got to have the drums sound like that the vocals have to have this like we're you know staying away from it and i think that's you know when i when rock bands that i love these days put out new albums i'm not saying like oh it'd be really cool if it sounded like pop music now it's like no i just want it to sound sick and you know what there i, I will say there are rock bands that sound like 2023 mm -hmm. and do a really good job and make it work uh yeah. buddy quick playing uh playing god oh polyphia polyphia yeah um i would say yeah they are 2023 rock yeah like i sure. think that's the evolution of if you take current day mm -hmm. rock yeah uh and they do it well mm -hmm. and like i don't listen to a shit ton of polyphia yeah playing god is catchy as hell oh yeah and watching him play 
makes me want to cry. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know I'll never be able to do mm, anything, anything. <laughs> as yeah. good as he plays guitar. Oh, yeah. No, they're nuts. But, yeah, you know, you're absolutely right if that's a band that leans into the modern sound and does it in a cool way. But I have noticed, actually, especially... I'm. I think in the guitar community as well. Yeah. But in the drumming community, like going on the drumming subreddit and like, you know, YouTube and stuff, there's this huge push of reclamation of the past mm -hmm. of like big snares are yeah. coming back. And like people are kind of realizing the drum sound of the 70s, especially is what yeah. people dial into, had such a cool place in music yeah. that a lot of people are trying to reclaim that with mm -hmm. modern recording techniques used in there as well yeah and i think that's a really cool way of doing it it's like okay you're kind of making an ode to yeah. the past while using modern yeah shit. while pushing it forward and kind of you know evolution right like no one wants to hear just a pure vintage nostalgia i mean some people do but in general that's not going to be regarded as like this is amazing art. It's just like, oh, this is fun. This band sounds like they're from the 50s or whatever. You know? Yeah. No, I, I'm not saying to fully like dive into like we we like a lot of old bands and yeah. that kind of stuff. We're not trying to sound like them. No. no. I mean, look at look at Greta Van Fleet. That's a way <laughs> to set yourself up for failure. <laughs> yeah. But like, you know, having using that knowledge of that yeah. and moving forward with that knowledge and stealing from many places and not yeah. just one is a great way of doing it. Yeah, for sure. So we went on a little bit of a tangent, but I'll just kind of tie it back to the, like, you know, per the perfect strangers album, like overall. Oh yeah. Know. That's what we were talking about. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we went for a ride, but uh, yeah, as a comeback, you know, it brought the gang back together. Mm -hmm. So it was really a reunion. Yeah. And you know, they had a decent amount of, you know, commercial success with it. I think it, the album went like number five or six in the charts or something like that yeah. so pretty good but you know it it didn't last very long of i think they put out a, a live album after that and then okay. ian gillen left the band again because he couldn't stand richie blackmore and valid after a while he came back and then richie blackmore left the band and he hasn't come back since <laughs> <laughs> so he he's off making medieval music with his wife beautiful yeah but I, you know i think there's what they did well in the comeback is, you know, they kept elements of their songs and they, they kind of realized like, okay, we've been through a lot of like personal stuff yeah. as band members, but this was the era we were really at our peak creative, mm. creatively and, you know, sonically and all that stuff. So I think bringing that back was cool. What I think was unfortunate is them just, I don't know exactly how it happened, but having so much influences of the times sonically affect the record from a band that like really cut their teeth in the 70s. They, they paved the way in a lot of ways yeah. and to just kind of stop paving the way and be like, okay, we're just going to fall into yeah. place. We're is... going to sound like this album is 1984. Right? Yeah. yeah. So you got one more album you want to talk about? Yeah. I mean, I want to talk about Queens of the Stone Age. Okay. Uh, yeah. In that... Songs for the Deaf yeah. came out, right? Like, yeah. And I think they were actually a band that was really paving the way mm -hmm. for coming into that 2000s rock, right? Yeah. Songs for the Deaf, you have Dave Grohl on drums, mm -hmm. Josh Home, Homie, Home? Home, Homie, I think. Is... Homie, okay. Um, and that's a phenomenal album. I don't generally like skits in yeah. albums. Yeah, it's, it's a thing that's difficult to do well, but I, I kind of agree that, like, 
in that one it really fits and it kind of gets the vibe of like you know what they were going for is listening to a bunch of radio stations cut in and out as you're driving through the desert where josh grew up yeah uh and if you haven't seen that little mini doc uh what's that called uh, oh the one about a uh, desert rock yeah I, d- I don't remember what it's called but on youtube i'm sure if you search up you know desert rock documentary or something something you know, will come dave up. girl in there josh homie and stuff yeah, like talking about like a lot of the you know the bands from that era so very cool <clears throat> pardon me they released that and then they kind of do the thing that deep purple did a bit where yeah. they kind of just fall in line with the times mm-hmm. uh they have a few albums in there uh era vulgaris is okay yeah. Um, you know, it has Make It With You, mm-hmm. uh, Threes and Sevens. I would say Threes and Sevens is more in line with kind of Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah. Make It With You is kind of out of place. And yeah. the rest of that album and the other one that I can't even remember the name of is just kind of out of place from what you'd expect from a band that made Songs of the Death. Songs of the Death, yeah. And something so, you know, as huge and impressive as that album and then they put out like clockwork yeah which is my favorite queens of the stone age album which is a bold claim compared (laughs) to songs of the deaf (laughs) yeah uh and i would say the drumming on songs of the deaf is a lot better i know that's grohl is Mm. like clockwork grohl no i don't know okay um you know i like to chirp dave grohl all i want but dude's a phenomenal drummer. oh yeah with no technique (laughs) 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 but uh yeah, they they released like clockwork, and it's mm-hmm. truly a return to form. Yeah, like you you have that classic Queens of the Stone Age sound, and I would say they are a huge influence co- going into the two thousands for rock bands. Yeah, I, I I'd like agree. they kind of set the tone in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. and like uh, you know Jack White was kind of doing his thing around the same time, but I would say even him kind of f- fell into more deserty rock. Yeah. I th- Post Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah, at th- I don't know how much like influence a band like Queens of the Stone Age had on Jack White. I could see some influences for sure. I would imagine that like if he was aware of like the whole philosophy around that like that desert rock scene of like how they used to like have a generator running the whole stage so they would put shows next to like in an, an empty abandoned up- skate park. Yeah, like- exactly, an emptied out swimming pool that people were skateboarding yeah. in and stuff like that. Like, you know, I'm sure that would have appealed to someone like Jack White a lot. And then I think also there's a certain amount of like common influences too of like old blues and blues rock bands that kind of evolved over that. And like it, Queens of the Stone Age when they're hitting, they're hitting. Oh, they yeah, have that sure. grimy blues based rock that like does embody a lot of that like grunge feeling of the yeah. 90s right well still kind of making it sound new and exciting yeah. and unfortunately after that they've <laughs> kind of eh, like what's they have the what, villains i villains, think is okay i like villains a lot personally I'm, i've listened to that album quite a bit it, yeah you know i i most people that i know like 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 clockwork a lot more yeah i'm i haven't dove into like clockwork super heavy you like villains better of what i've heard i think i like villains. no better. way hot take hot i take. didn't know that about you and i respect <laughs> you less now yeah, <laughs> and then yeah they put an album this year yeah but, we listened to that together a few times in yeah. the car and it was on yeah it 
it, it sounded like Queens of the Stone Age. Yeah, the songs definitely blend together quite a bit. But yeah, it's that th- that's a, a pitfall a lot of bands fall into. I feel mm-hmm. is they just kind of sometimes just drive like in in cruise control and yeah. it's like yeah it's not bad yeah it's what you expect from this band you but. put on the album you know queens of the stone age is happening when you're listening yeah. to it and then it stops and you're like okay no more okay. queens yeah, <laughs> yeah that's done yeah so okay in terms of the comeback aspect because i know like clockwork has a lot of you know interesting things with you know how that album was created yeah so do you know, uh, are you prepared to talk about any of them? Are you prepared to talk about any of them? I read a lot of them last night. Yeah. Um, I was looking at it more as a return to form, and now I can't remember a yeah. lot of it. I, I, I don't know a whole lot, so this is going to be one of the parts of the episode where like... Oh, you get to Taylor when you just kind of say facts and hope yeah, they're right. hope they're right. Uh, I, I do believe Josh Homie was going through some a fight with cancer at the time yes, and like yes. very nearly died. And I think that kind of like fed a lot of the, you know, musical perspectives he was going from. So there's kind of an interesting parallel there between like the albums we started this episode with of like the, you know, the Johnny Cash and David Bowie stuff of like, you know, what they were going through at the time. Now, obviously Josh Homie is still alive and survived. So mm-hmm. that, that's good and there's that difference so, so whereas those albums were confronting death josh homie was actively punching at death yeah being like get away from me <laughs> yeah be gone be yeah. gone <laughs> <laughs> yeah but i think that that's pretty interesting and then i i don't think they had a drummer when they went into recording it and then they i think he asked dave Grohl to drum on it and he couldn't and then suggested yeah. i forget the guy's name but the the current drummer of Queens of the Stone Age, I believe they got for that album. Yeah, because what year I have it written down here? Twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen is like Clockwork. So yeah, Dave, Dave's full swing in Foo Fighters, probably doing yeah. world tours and yeah, stuff. Yeah, probably like, pretty busy. <laughs> yeah, he uh, he's uh, got maybe not better things to do, but different things to do. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about Queens of the Stone Age and we're mentioning Dave Grohl a lot, I think there there is another interesting angle to the the comeback thing for these two bands specifically because both josh homie and uh you know dave grohl they lead these two bands queens of stone age and foo fighters but they were previously part of other bands that were very instrumental in their you know genres right i actually don't know what band josh homie was in so he played in caius oh my god really yeah he was the guitar player in that and you know that was probably the biggest band out of that desert rock scene yeah was, was Caius. so you know they had their run and then left and josh homie kind of starts this new band and in the same way you know dave Grohl was a member of nirvana yeah for the you know whoever doesn't know that <laughs> but <laughs> you know nirvana obviously this like massive band the defining band of the grunge era really of the 90s yeah i like, would say they were huge and, you know, Dave Grohl was obviously a well-respected and, you know, like, loved member of that band, but... He was the drummer. He was the drummer. People were paying attention to this Kurt Cobain guy who's writing these songs that, like, sum up everybody's frustrations at the Pat's time. And even Pat's probably getting more attention than Dave Grohl, because Dave yeah. Grohl's in the back. At least Pat's out front. That's yeah. his name, right, Pat? Uh, the so they had... Uh, bassist is Chris Novoselic, and Shit. then Pat... 
Pap Smear, I believe, was Pat Smear was uh, the they brought in as a touring guitar player. Okay, and, and then he now plays in Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. Okay, yeah. But what I think is kind of interesting about these two bands is like they could have been just footnotes in the history of their other respective bands. Yep. Had they not have done the like great music that they ended up doing, right? Like it could have been like, oh, you know, you're reading the Nirvana page. It's like, oh yeah, this the drummer had this like other band. Solo project. Yeah, Foo Fighters. Nothing really happened. But no, it like they got huge. And, you know, I think because of that, like it, you know, I think Dave Grohl still would have had his place in rock history, but like, He's a rock god now. The biggest show in Ottawa's history yeah. is the Foo Fighters <laughs> here in 2017, the yeah. day that we met. Yeah, true. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, Foo Fighters, haven't all their albums haven't been bangers. Yeah. But their relevancy and yeah. staying power is yeah, phenomenal. undeniable. Yeah, it's, definitely. It's They still sometimes put out really good music. Oh, yeah. No, a couple of their albums are, like, phenomenal. Yeah. And I think kind of similar... <laughs> you know in a similar vein queens of the stone age you know like that could have just been like oh the guitarist of caius had a this band but like i think most more people know josh homie from queens of stone age for than, sure than caius right? yeah and like, like i mean yeah I, I think more people know nirvana yeah but like still to yeah. even come close yeah is like to that relevancy f- is phenomenal insane. and you know yeah like Dave Grohl, you know, has come very close to like matching the relevance of Nirvana, and then Josh Homme is like far exceeded what you know Caius was. And to be fair, Matt exceeding the cultural relevancy of Caius is a lot easier than the cultural relevancy of Nirvana. Yeah, that's that's like trying to get number one above Thriller. Yeah, like exactly. that's it's just not gonna happen, yeah, dude. Yeah. So I, you know, there's kind of this thing of like for both these guys, their new band was this comeback of like, you know, I have more music to give. I I mean more to this than just what my last band was, kind of thing. So. Yeah, and I mean Dave Grohl specifically had a bunch of music stockpiled yeah because he kept bringing it to kurt and kurt was like i'm not doing that and <laughs> yeah. dave Grohl's like fine i'm just gonna write it down put it in the corner yeah. kurt passes away he's like well i got three albums <laughs> <laughs> yeah go go through it but yeah i think the you know what they were able to accomplish is is pretty cool and you know and they hit that comeback and just kept building on it yeah so, it's kind of a, an interesting thing looking at these comebacks and seeing like what happened after because i mean we start out talking about like people's comeback was at the end of their life as they were dying mm-hmm. and then you had comebacks that you know gained gave the band a ton of momentum and they kind of like kept riding that momentum in acdc you yep. had bands at the comeback kind of return you know, to form yeah return to form you had some that you know okay it was a little reunion and it fizzles out again kind of like deep purple but i mean in that same vein deep purple is still going today and putting out albums yep. so you know it's not the same members of that reunion or the original lineup or anything and now with foo fighters you have you know we talked about uh comebacks confronting death literally foo fighters is a comeback birthed out of death yeah like a phoenix like exactly so i i, th- I think that that aspect of it is really cool and i think that's you know part of why foo fighters are you know have their state in rock music that they have on yeah t- on top of you know putting out great music for as long as they have and you know kind of still making music so yeah rest in peace taylor hawking yeah 
All right. Well, I think that kind of covers, you know, a lot of the stuff of like what makes a comeback and what what good things there are, what bad things there are. Yeah, man. I mean, this this was a pretty appropriate topic for us coming back, and only mm-hmm. time will tell if this is a real comeback <laughs> or not. Yeah, our first uh, one-off reunion. <laughs> I'm really happy we're doing this again, man. Yeah. And I'm I, I'm thinking next time we'll be talking more about. Uh, some stuff that's actually going on with us and the band and yeah, that'd be fun. Maybe some stuff like that, but that's all I'll say Yeah, because we haven't actually talked about that <laughs> and I don't want to overpromise, under deliver. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you have any episode ideas you want to hear us talk about, be sure to email us at louder than the fridge at gmail.com. Yes. I think, and we'll start monitoring that email. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. Peace. Thanks for listening. Peace. <laughs>